So what we're going to talk about is a little heavy today, a little subject that I think everybody deals with at one time or another. And the subject is rejection. And um, Jocelyn has graciously allowed us to, um, allowed me to ask some questions and to step into a pretty painful season in her life. Um, and so I, I just, I feel like we're walking into holy ground, and I appreciate you letting uh, your church family in, and um, I think she'll have some good things to share with us. So uh, my first question is, you have walked through and continue to walk through a painful season of rejection, specifically your divorce. Could you unpack for us what that has been like for you? Good morning, family. Um, I am happy to be here to share this piece of my heart with you. Um, I'm going to read probably most of my answers just so I stay on track and don't rabbit trail. <laughs> so answer number one is nearly five years ago, my husband chose to leave our marriage of 28 years for another relationship. I was shocked, confused felt useless and discarded, and plunged into the devastating pain of rejection. This was a deep, debilitating emotional pain like I had never experienced. Life as I knew it and my future as I saw it all shattered in an instant. Close family and friends scattered to avoid me. Some chose sides and others just didn't know how or want to deal with the situation. And this became an additional level of rejection. The process of my divorce took four long, very painful years, during which I also experienced caring for my elderly father with Alzheimer's who lived with me, an open heart surgery, the death of my father, and COVID. Okay. How has Jesus Christ helped you in this very difficult season? Jesus and I have walked through several difficult experiences in my life. And my divorce definitely ranks at the top of this list. It would not have been possible for me to walk this journey well without him. He became my 24-7 counselor and showered my dark journey with many incredible miracles. When my husband left and I immediately needed funds to support myself and my dad, Jesus was there to show me how to open a rental business in my home. When I needed to release my pain and figure out how to walk through this journey, Jesus spoke to me through books, counselors, horses, and trusted friends. When I needed to stop all of the crazy voices in my head, Jesus would whisper, sing to me, and we would chase away the voices with worship. When I needed additional care for my dad, Jesus miraculously provided an opening in the Pioneer home for him, and he was already a resident there when I needed emergency heart surgery. When I needed repairs to my house, 
Jesus provided an honest and skillful contractor. When my father was dying, Jesus made sure that Dad and I were together for those last moments. When I needed more funds because of the divorce, Jesus brought me out of a seven-year retirement of my accounting profession into the perfect part-time flexible job. He has infused joy into me again by bringing me into this church family, adding two beautiful grandsons to our family, and kindling some awesome girlfriend relationships. He has been, and still remains, in every minute detail of my life. He helped me to get up each day, tackle the tasks of being a caregiver, pay the bills, make the repairs, and figure out a new normal. He gave me stability, peace, and even joy in my lowest and darkest times and made my impossible possible. What advice would you give to someone who has just begun some kind of painful time or season of rejection? I have a few points of advice. First one is, do not isolate yourself. Seek out friends and family and counselors of godly, compassionate character who are willing to listen to you, pray with you, and speak wisdom into your life. Second, commit yourself to talking more with God than anyone else about your pain and problems, and be willing to listen to and follow the advice that Jesus gives you. Third, fill your time with positive activities and work, and immediately take the negative thoughts captive as soon as they pop up. Fourth, don't hold grudges or unforgiveness. They only hurt you emotionally and will damage your health. Your goal is to become better and not bitter through this journey. Five, two good books that helped me walk through this process. First one is Broken Heart on Hold by Linda Rooks and Forgiving What You Can't Forget by Linda Turkhurst. Six, for those who encounter someone experiencing rejection, give a bit of your time to listen and pray. Hugs work great as well. Seven, be kind to yourself. Allow yourself time to process and heal and just be you at whatever stage you are in. If you find yourself in the grocery store and the song triggers a memory and you feel like crying, just cry. And when the nice shopper lady comes up and says, are you okay? You say, I'm fine, and go find your Cheerios. That's beautiful, yeah. I burst into tears at the gas pump, but that's a different issue. 
Um, how have you walked out the scriptural call to forgive anyone who has hurt you? Colossians 3.13 states, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is not a suggestion for a very good reason. Jesus makes a big deal about forgiveness throughout the whole Bible because he knows that unforgiveness will destroy the person who chooses not to forgive. In my journey of walking through the process of forgiveness with several counselors, I have learned that forgiveness is not the approval of what the other person did, excusing their inappropriate behavior, justifying, pardoning, denying, or forgetting what they did, requiring that you trust that person again, or reconciliation, as that takes the full cooperation of all parties involved in the relationship. Forgiveness is being fully aware of what they did and choosing to forgive them, keeping no records of wrongs, choosing not to punish. A heart change for me, strictly between me and God. The absence of bitterness. And forgiveness often needs to be repeated, not because God didn't hear you, but because you still have things to release. And they can sometimes be triggered more than once. Now I'd like to share a short story with you, a true experience concerning forgiveness that happened with me. A dear missionary friend of mine in Thailand surprised me one day with a phone call that she wanted to visit me in Alaska on her next trip to the U.S. I suggested that I would meet her in Seattle to save her some time and expense on travel, but she insisted that she must come to Alaska. Dorothy made the trip, and at my dining room table, shared that she had a word from God for me. It was simply, have you forgiven? I was surprised, and I shared with her that my counselors and I had walked through forgiving, and I felt pretty confident that we had taken care of that. Wise lady that she is, she said no more on the topic. She departed a couple of days later, and said she would call me before she flew back to Thailand. Meanwhile, <laughs> over the next few days, I was bombarded with devotions, songs, and verses about forgiveness. I had a conversation with God something like, so is there something you're trying to tell me about unforgiveness? I mentioned this incident to one of my counselors, and his immediate response was a suggestion of a book titled Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. I purchased the book and began to read it that night. The information was familiar, and I recognized that I had already worked through several of those issues. Then I read chapter 6. 
promptly threw the book across the room and told God, no way. It took him a few days of gentle prompting to get me to pick up the book and work through the chapter of not just praying for those who deeply hurt me, but blessing them as well. Here's how it is described in the book. Praying for the one who has hurt you or let you down is the greatest challenge of all for three reasons. First, you take a route utterly against the flesh. Second, nobody will ever know you are doing it. Three, your heart could break when God answers that prayer and truly blesses them as if they had never sinned. It was extremely difficult, but I have finally accomplished working through chapter 6, and I was immediately engulfed in a blanket of peace. That's when I realized that I had previously merely performed a surface scrub of forgiveness, and God wanted me to do the deep clean version. I will be forever grateful for his loving persistence to walk me through the process of forgiveness for my healing. Well, thank you for your vulnerability, and we appreciate it. Can you give her a hand? Thank you so much. Honestly, feel like you've already heard the sermon, but we'll we'll look at this. Let's pray again. Dear God, thanks for today. Thanks for Jocelyn's words. Thank you for walking with her. And Lord, rejection's universal. There are so many here that have been rejected by parents or their grown children, their spouse business partner, a friend. Lord, into this painful place, we invite your spirit to heal, and to help, and to make whole. Lord, we know that Jesus is the great shalom. He is peace. We just ask for that for each person here, wherever they are in their story. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So when I was at Taylor University many years ago in, in college, the, uh, I had a friend of mine named Neil, and Neil did not have a, a girlfriend, but he was excited about this circus that came to town. And this circus came, he bought two tickets, one for him and one for a date, and so he set out to find a young lady, you know, there at Taylor to go with him. So Neil called the first girl, invited her, she said no. Called the second girl, invited her, she said no. Called the third girl, invited her, she said no. Called the fourth girl, invited her, she said no. 
called the fifth girl, invited her to go to the circus with him. She said yes, and in his excitement said, oh, thank you, you're the fifth girl I've called. <laughs> oh. Now, here's the thing. She went, and they had a good time, and I realize this is a different era, but after the date, a couple days later, he gets a thank you note from her. And on the front, she wrote, Bill crossed out, Steve crossed out, John crossed out. <laughs> I really liked her. <laughs> now, generally speaking, rejection is not funny. It's painful, it's hard, and you're an outline person, the reality of rejection is all around us. It's all around us. Lisa Turkhurst, who she already mentioned, uh, in one of her books, a book called Uninvited, she tells a story about her father, who when she was a little girl, she watched as he packed up to abandon their family, and she said he never looked at her, never said goodbye, just walked out the door and drove away. And she wrote this. It's in your notes, I believe. Rejection settled deep into my heart, and I came to one earth-shattering conclusion. I don't matter. I am worth nothing to my dad. And even more disturbing, I fear I am worth nothing to God. The sum of these feelings became my new identity. Who is Lisa, the unwanted one? Maybe you've had a boss call you in and say, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. Maybe you poured your life into a child who grew up and has told you, Mom, I don't, I don't want any contact. And so rejection is, I think, universal. And we have this tendency to look at Jesus and focus on the big crowds and the popular ministry and forget how he had to deal with rejection quite often, actually. We're working through the Gospel of Mark, hitting some of those highlights as we head towards Easter. And I want you to see, yes, there were large crowds, but in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus attacked by the religious leadership and the Herodians. Mark chapter 3, I think one of the most painful, verse 21 and 22, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. This is the family of Jesus. For they said he is out of his mind. See, he was claiming to be God, which does sound crazy unless you're God, which he is. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And I want you to think about that, that the religious leaders, these are the Jewish religious leaders, this is who God set apart as his special chosen people. And he worked with them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to prepare them for the great Messiah who would take care of their sin problem and our sin problem. And this is how the leadership responded. They looked at the miracles he did, and particularly the driving out of demons, and said, well, he does it by the power of the devil. Last week, we talked about Mark chapter 5. 
And here was this man who was living in a cemetery, naked, running around. There are actually two men if you read all the parallel texts, but Mark focuses on the one dominant one. And I had a legion of demons inside of him, or at least many demons, who called himself legion. Jesus drives him out, saves this man, I mean, gives him peace and wholeness. And the community comes and says, Jesus, leave. Because he casts the demons into the pigs and costs them that entire uh, herd of pigs. Now, and then we get to this text, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Now, some background, if I understand the timeline correctly... He went to his hometown about a year before this and was rejected by them. So he comes again, comes to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where does this man get these things, they ask? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? See, he grew up there, and his, his earthly father, stepfather, was a carpenter and taught him the trade, and so Jesus functioned as a carpenter for quite some time. Isn't this Mary's son? Now, this might just slide past an American audience, but in that culture, to call him Mary's son, this is a dig. In Jewish culture, you didn't refer to someone as the son of the mom, you always referred to the dad. This is a little bit of a dig, like, remember those illegitimate child rumors about Jesus? You know, that whole virgin birth story? We're not really buying that. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Now let me hit pause here. You know, there's a, a large... Christian tradition, the Roman Catholic Church, that teaches what they call the perpetual virginity of Mary. So um, the birth of Jesus is a miracle. She didn't have sexual relationship. And she stayed a virgin through her entire married life. And so that's what the Roman Catholic Church believes, and they teach the perpetual virgin, uh, Mary, the virginity of Mary. Um, I call it the Bummer Joseph Doctrine. That's my personal name for it. And Catholic theologians say, well, these are sons and daughters of Joseph, and his wife died, and then he marries Mary, and that's, that's a deal. Now, Protestants, we, we don't believe that. We think that Joseph and Mary had a normal marriage relationship once Jesus was born. So that's, that's a difference, a theological difference. Okay, and they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house as a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Now, there's a lot of ink on this verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay a few hands. So he, he does heal some people, which is miraculous. But he didn't do remotely the level of the miraculous that he normally did. And, you know, there's a tie to, you know, God likes to bless faith. He likes to work in partnership with faith. Um, 
I don't think faith is always required. I mean, stop and think about um, Lazarus. And when he died and Jesus raised him from the dead, Lazarus wasn't exercising faith. His sisters weren't exercising faith. They came to Jesus and rebuked him. Hey, if you'd gotten here before he died, you could have done something. And so I don't think Jesus is dependent on our faith to be able to do anything. I wouldn't read it that strongly. I would read it as, you know, there is not as many people responded, so he couldn't do as much because not as many people came to him and asked for help, asked for some kind of intervention. Um, But he did heal some. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And God does like to honor faith. Now what's sad here is to have Jesus be amazed at somebody's lack of faith. May that never be said of us. It's interesting, in another passage, Jesus is amazed at the faith of a Roman centurion who says, hey, you know, would you just say the word about my sick servant? And I know that that'll, that'll be enough. He understood authority and understood the authority of Jesus. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. That's what we want to hear. Jesus looks at your faith and he's amazed by it. Not this one. But then Jesus keeps on with the mission. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. There's an old statement, familiarity breeds contempt. And this is kind of what happened here. They knew him growing up. They'd watched him. They'd been around him. And they just had a hard time believing that he was who he said he was. Now, rejection is something all of us experience Rejection is certainly something Jesus experienced. It is woven through the Bible if you look at it. You see Joseph in the book of Genesis. His brothers reject him and sell him into slavery. You see the great Moses, one of the greatest leaders to ever live. And you see his people, the Jewish people, over and over again reject him. They talked about stoning him. You see at one point, even his brother and sister turn on Moses. I mean, that's cold. And then I think about the story of David. David's one of my favorite Bible characters. But stop and look at that story, and you see rejection woven through it. You see Samuel the prophet comes to Jesse the father and says, hey, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And so gather your sons. And Jesse either forgot about the youngest David, or he just didn't think there was even a chance. I think there's a bit of a father wound here. And Samuel goes through all these other boys, says, nope, 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 nope. Is there another one? Oh, yeah. And so David is brought in, and he's going to be the next king. Now, there's rejection lots of different ways. I think that the oldest brother, which that would have been the cultural expectation that God's going to work with the older brother. That's kind of how they viewed it. You know, that's you've got the double inheritance, those kind of things. And so when you see the famous story of much later in David's life when he is going to battle Goliath, when he shows up to bring basically lunches to his older brothers who are fighting, listen to how the, older, the oldest brother reacts to David. 
So David comes and, he, and he's like, he sees this giant mocking God, mocking the Israelite army. And he's like, what is going on here? He starts asking questions and you can tell he's, he's thinking about it because he's, you know, he's a man of faith. Like, hey, I don't have to be amazing. God's amazing. I just have to show up and be available. And listen to the older brother's reaction, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28. When Eliab... David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and said, Why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Easy now. You see, that's rejection festering and turning on David. David's rejected by this brother, um, you know, then he goes to Saul, King Saul says, there's no way you can fight Goliath, you're just a boy, you can't do this. Um, when David goes to fight Goliath, Goliath mocks him, you know, who do you think I am? You think I'm a dog? You come at me with sticks? Of course, David kills him. David's victorious, he becomes a great military leader, and then what happens, he starts winning all these battles, starts beating the Philistines, and then there's this bad moment where, you know, this is pre-social media, but... David becomes, I mean, he is the next big thing. And the women are dancing and they start to sing that, that Saul, the king, has killed, has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. How do you think Saul felt about that? And so Saul gets, he feels rejected by the people. He rejects David, who's been nothing but loyal, goes after David, tries to kill him. I mean, it, is just, it just goes on and on and on. Rejection woven through the life of David, woven through our lives in different ways. Author Kurt Thompson says this, he said, Many people in their internal dialogue are saying to themselves, If anyone really knew me, they would leave me. We all, I think, have a fear of rejection. There was some MRI studies, um, Guy Winch, PhD in psychology, he wrote in Psychology Today, he said this, MRI studies showed that the same areas of the brain become activated when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain. So the same stuff lights up. It's that hard for us. So how do we respond to rejection? Well, I think Jesus Christ gives us the keys as we deal with rejection. The first one is, an outline person, remember the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, more than anything else, I think gives us this compelling message and picture that Jesus loves us in a stunning, sacrificial, deeply passionate way, that he would give his life for us. You know, at our core, it has been said by different authors and Voskamp says it, all of us want to be known, heard, seen, and safe. Remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember the price that was paid for you. Remember how deeply you are loved. The love of God is exhibited and displayed. We just celebrated it with communion time. And the body that was offered for us and the blood that was spilled for us and when we remember the cross of Christ, we understand, hopefully at a deep level, that we are profoundly loved. I think I put this in your notes as well. There's a kind of love, and the Hebrew word is has said, I may not be saying it right, I was not very good at Hebrew, I'll be honest. 
But um, you see this word in the Old Testament a lot. And this is what um, Ann Voskamp says about it. She says, it's used nearly 250 times in Scripture in such a powerful manner that some theologians have suggested it may be the most important word in Scripture. As said, is the forever, covenantal, always unconditionally, unwavering, loyal, kind love of inseparable bonding, of divine family, of eternal attachment. Hesed is attachment love. It is this relational love that God offers his people, that God offers us. And we're to have a relationship with him. There's to be a response from us. This kind of love is at the core of who God is at the core of his character. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, the first part of verse 7, it talks about God in this way. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And this is this Hebrew word here. And faithfulness, maintaining love, same word, to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You are not just tolerated you are deeply and passionately loved by God. You are wanted. Louis Giglio said this, he said, you are worth Jesus to God. That's the price he paid. That's the price he paid. You know, when you go into a store, you see the value of the item by the price tag. That tells you. One author as a teenager, I guess, got into the story. It was really ornery, and he switched all the price tags. And so, you know, big TVs were $4, and, you know, pens were $500. And that's confusing, right? But the price God was willing to pay for you and for me is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we remember the cross. He painfully paid for us to have a relationship with him if we're willing. I love this image in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, part A. You know, today you see a lot of people that are into tattoos and you'll see a couple and, and he's got her name on, on his body and she has his name on her body. As long as it works out, it, it's fine. But, you know, it gets awkward if, if it's not. Um, and... And obviously God doesn't, you know, God the Father does not have this physical body, but he gives us this metaphor in this picture in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, the first part. He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. There's a permanence there. You're my beloved. You're my beloved. We have so many voices that are talking to us are telling us whether we're valuable or not, make sure that the voice you hear above every other voice is the voice of the God who loves you and paid the price for you on the cross. The next idea is to embrace your identity. Embrace your identity. Your identity matters. Notice in our text, Mark chapter 6, verse 4, that Jesus, he identifies himself part, this is not his whole identity, but it's a little part of it. He says, look, um, only in his hometown among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. He's like, I'm a prophet, whether you accept it, believe it or not. 
Now, he's also priest, he's also king, he's also the son of God, fully divine. This is just one piece of his identity. Identity matters. Who are you can help you when you face rejection from someone else. I love how Jesus, because he's fully human, yes, he's fully God, but he's fully human, how God the Father meets this need in him. We see in, in his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. So Jesus is baptized. And as he went up out of the water, at that moment, heaven was opened and, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, notice this, this is an identity marker. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus has not healed anybody. He's not preached a bunch of sermons. He's not died on the cross and redeemed humanity, those who are willing. This is at the beginning. And God the Father offers this gift and reminder to Jesus, hey, as you enter this season of rejection, whether it's the religious leaders, whether it's those who aren't interested, whether it's people saying that you do these things by the power of Satan, whether it's people saying, get out of town, don't come back. Remember, you're my son, who I love, and in whom I am well pleased. And then, right before he's, he's going to go to the cross, what we talk about is the transfiguration. This is when, remember, Jesus and some Old Testament prophets show up and a couple of the apostles are with them and they're excited about this. And Peter, of course, like, oh, let's build you know, places for you to live. Let's just hang out here on the mountaintop. And they're here to encourage Jesus as he's facing the cross. And I love it. It's the same thing. Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love with him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is about to go in to the chosen people and be rejected by them, at least most of them, and hang on a cross and experience the very wrath of God because all of our sins are going to be put on him. He's going to see this relationship with God the Father broken for the first time in all eternity as he pays the price for us. And he's going to experience this rejection at a level that we cannot comprehend. And he says, before you go do that, remember, this is my son, whom I love, whom I am well pleased. You know, Jesus called God the Father, Abba, which in that culture, in that language, was basically like our daddy. You know, imagine a little child, dada. You know, just a painful side thing on our culture. There are actually cases of children saying Alexa now before mama. Have you read that? That's troubling. Like 170 times, Jesus cries out to Dada, cries out to his father. This relationship, this identity, as he, as he walks through a ministry where some are pulling him to be a political king, and he's like, nope. Where others are rejecting him outright, he's like, I'll just keep on going. He embraced that identity. And he offers us this beautiful identity. 
the picture of adoption. It's a signpost. Some of you have experienced adoption. Some have done adoption. J.I. Packer, the theologian, the British theologian, said, our spiritual adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. We go from being rebels and enemies of God to, through the cross and the resurrection, to being sons and daughters of God. We are not just followers of God. We are invited into the family. That is profound. Back to David, who I I like a lot. David in the Old Testament, he had this great relationship with Jonathan, this, this son of Saul, this enemy of David, that David had been so kind to, so loyal to. And after Saul, the king, and his son Jonathan, who Jonathan, I mean, it cost him dearly to care about David, to be his friend, to be his ally, because most would have thought Jonathan would be the next king. And Jonathan said, nope, I support David. But when they died, David looked around and he said, is there anybody in Saul's house that I can bless because of Jonathan? Because of his love, because of his sacrifice, because of his kindness. And Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth, and David invites him to the king's table. And in essence, in my understanding of this, it's like he became David's son adopted him into the family. That is profound and powerful, to take an enemy, a rebel, and adopt him into the family, to bring him in. This is a profound gift, and it's a whole new identity. My sister adopted three children from a Russian orphanage uh, years ago, and we got to watch as they embraced their new identity. Author Jenny Allen and her husband adopted, and she said they went through this training before they did it. And she said, you know, I've forgotten most of the lectures, but one of the things they told her, they said, if you want your child to thrive, make them feel seen and loved. And she said, we've tried to do that. God sees you. The ugly parts, the beautiful parts, the failures, the shame, the victories. He sees you and loves you. It's not, you know, this fickle love where if you drop the mask, some people will walk away. He knows. You see, we long for heaven, a place, but the reality is our destiny as Christians is a relationship. The relationship is the destination. It's to be with God and have an eternal relationship with Him. Yes, there's the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be beautiful and amazing and incredible. But it's that we get to be with God Author Lisa Turkhurst has a phrase that I I really like. She said, you know, as you embrace our identity in Christ, this is her phrase, she said, you learn to live loved. Live loved. As you walk through life, live loved because you are. The third and final idea is this. As we deal with rejection, follow the example of Christ. Now, I, I should mention You know, sometimes rejection, I've been focused on rejection that we didn't bring on ourselves that, you know, that, you know, sometimes like if you show up for the job interview and you're higher than a kite, you're going to get rejected. That, that's just human behavior 101, okay? I'm talking about the rejections that just come at us in life. 
Because if, if we do something like that, we just have to repent. That's the answer there. But we want to follow the example of Christ. Mark chapter 6, our starting text again, verse 6. Notice, so he's amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. He perseveres in the mission. He doesn't allow the rejection of his hometown. You know, I just got to go back to where I grew up, Indianapolis, Indiana. And I, I love going there. I, I took my mom to the church where she and my father served for over 40 years. And I, I feel like I'm with, you know, dad couldn't go. He's, he's in a uh, memory care unit. Um, but mom could go. And I tell you, when you go into that church with Janet Dickinson, it's like going with a celebrity. You know, it's, it's amazing. But to have your hometown reject you? That's brutal. And Jesus here, he gives them a second chance and they reject him again, or at least most did. God worked with the Jewish people. Not all, but so many of them rejected the gift of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, his example was, I will keep working out, walking out the mission. So whatever God calls you to do, which, you know, their broad strokes are honor God, love God, love others, make disciples. Whatever God calls you to do, however that looks specifically in your life, keep walking out the mission. Persevere when you're rejected. Expect rejection. It's part of it. It's part of life. It's part of following Jesus. Folks, when we follow Jesus Christ and you look at his life, he died on a cross. Now, he did rise from the dead, obviously, but he died on a cross. We are foolish to expect the world is going to embrace us. We're following a guy who got killed. Now, they didn't get the last word. The resurrection's the last word. So as you experience rejection which you will, cling to Jesus Christ. His stunning love is revealed to us by the cross. And his incredible offer of an identity, of being his son and daughter, son or daughter, to be part of his family, and this incredible persevering example he gives us, helps us. So the big idea today is this. Rejection hurts. Christ helps Rejection hurts, but Christ helps. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, there are people who've been wounded by their spouse, by their parents, by their boss, by their friend. We've all been there. Lord, we've wounded people. Lord, help us to be sensitive to that. Help us to not be dispensers of rejection, but dispensers and channels of your grace mercy, and kindness. Lord, we are so grateful that you see us, the good, the bad, the ugly, and that you have not looked away, but that you have offered us life, forgiveness, joy, and relationship. Lord, I pray that we turn and offer it to others. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.